The Blunt Post with Vic. Good morning, happy Monday, and welcome to The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jarami, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. The Blunt Post with Vic is a program that covers national, regional, and local headline news, offers analysis and commentary, and I interview members of Congress, local elected officials, and other high-profile public figures. Later on the show, I interview Seth Maxwell, the founder and CEO of Legacy Youth Leadership uh, to discuss his exceptional nonprofit organization. And we'll be listening to my interview with LA Council member Hugo Soto Martinez. Seth Maxwell is the founder and CEO of Legacy Youth Leadership, a nonprofit organization that works to build a socially conscious and active generation of young people. Uh, Seth has spoken internationally, including at TEDx, the Global Youth Summit, and has addressed the United Nations General Assembly. Among a plethora of honors, Seth has been featured by Forbes 30 Under 30 and received a Do Something Award. Good morning, Seth. Thank you for being on The Blunt Post with Vic this morning. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Thanks for being on the show and telling us about uh, Legacy Youth Leadership. Uh, One of the uh, one of the organizations that you have founded and which is doing great work with uh, with the youth, with students. Um, so let's just get right into it. What do you guys do at uh, Legacy Youth Leadership? Yeah, so Legacy Youth Leadership is working to build better leaders uh, who are going to build a better world, honestly. So we work with predominantly high school and college students to help them develop very specific skills that we know are critical no matter what space or field of leadership you may occupy, whether it's uh, leading in a school group, in your academic career, your professional career, uh, government, non-government. So things like communication and public speaking skills, uh, but also organization and strategic planning skills. Um, things like fundraising and effective communication and mobilizing. And so it's interesting because so much of the work that we do really does focus in low-income communities. We've really made an emphasis to prioritize access to these programs in uh, extremely low-income communities because to the point you kind of brought up earlier in one of the other organizations I had worked with that I led, I founded and led a little bit ago, we worked with predominantly middle and upper income communities just because by nature of trying to fundraise from communities, that was where we went. Um, but in coaching so many students to be better fundraisers, we realized that there were all these other skills that we were teaching students and they were skills that the students who probably needed them the most were likely the students we were working with the least. And so that was really what gave birth to Legacy. That's very admirable. Uh, Walk me through how this works. So is it that you go to universities or high schools and college campuses, or is it that uh, you have a center and people come to you? So we do not have a center that people come to, but it's also not exclusively that we go to high school and college campuses. Uh, The hybrid is we do go run in-person programs on high school and college campuses with schools that we partner with. Um, And so the way we've organized our two primary programs, which is our leadership program and our speaking program, is the leadership program is organized into four tracks 
time, money, voice, and vote. How do you as a person, a young person, use your time, your money, your voice, your vote to change the outcome of an issue that you care about? And then within each of those tracks, there are a number of different skills that we help students develop, right? The speaking program is a little bit more in depth. Uh, the voice track of the leadership program is sort of a prereq for the speaking program, but it goes much deeper for students who really want to not just perhaps organize a awareness campaign or figure out how to better communicate in a broad sense, but really how to give persuasive speeches about issues they care about to move people to act. Um, and so that's a, a little bit smaller cohort who really focus on honing a presentation about particular issues that they care about. Um, each of those programs, you know, run all year long. We have different cohorts of students and they are both in person and digital or virtual. So what I mean is they were built in such a way that if you're a student who is not at a school that we have a broader, like larger partnership with where we're going to send our staff or team to go run in-person programs, anyone can sign up to go through the programs through our online course, almost like a like masterclass, but masterclass for helping you develop these skills to go change the world, as well as the live sessions that our staffers lead each week within the individual cohort. And, and you can do so on your own, at your own pace, without being part of a group that we're at in person. However, we do also work with schools that we actually physically send our staff and teams in to go lead in-person cohorts through the same program, just in-person entirely versus that hybrid. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So even though you are, the organization is based in Los Angeles, uh, it wouldn't matter nationwide, you can still reach um, and students can really get the benefit, just do it virtually. Yeah, we, we actually have two of our education programs staffers, our full-time team members in Portugal right now, working with international students at an international school that's requested us to come run programs there for the next week. So uh, we have in-person programming happening with those students. And then also throughout the rest of the year, we've partnered with that school. They've requested that we actually run our programs with their students throughout the year. And so we're constantly working to provide mentorship to those students as they not only progress through the programs themselves, but also get to the real heart of what we want to happen, which is that as students complete these programs, how do we prove how do we say they've actually grown as communicators as organizers as fundraisers as leaders uh the space that we want them to go apply those skills is impact social impact right so students who go through these programs on the other side of them they'll take action around the causes or issues they care about um we've worked with several thousand students just this year already and so we are we're pretty data driven we constantly try to survey and ask questions of our students to make sure that we're meeting them where they're at and serve them in the way that is most impactful and consistently time and time again as we ask what is the issue or what are the causes that students care about that they want us to provide them with tools to take action around as they move their way through these programs uh you know it's things like climate change mental health uh, but then things as well like gender equality racial justice and equity homelessness and so much more and so once students have completed these programs it's not just a program to sort of enrich someone or make them you know a better leader so they can go get a super high paying job job, although you know, we want to see students succeeding and doing really well. Uh, but the hope is that they take these skills and dig in in their local communities, in our global community, and take action around real projects that they work on as they complete these programs to go measurably improve the human rights standards, environmental quality of their local community and our world. 
Wow, that's a lot. Um, that's a lot. This is the Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jarami, and you are listening to my interview with Seth Maxwell from Legacy Youth Leadership. I want us to sort of step back and look at a bigger picture. I was uh, reading a about a Fortune 500 executive who recently said that uh, our 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 nation our system is failing uh, the youth. Um, and there's always a, a degree of disconnect between uh, people in their teens and even early 20s with the rest of the population. Something I feel like now that disconnect is even more than ever. What do you think are some of the the biggest disconnects? Uh, from from sort of the emerging Gen X uh, or Z, not Gen X, but Z, Y and Z, uh, and the rest, um, what are some of the unique challenges they're facing? You mentioned some, some broad uh, topics like social justice and human rights and LGBTQ, et cetera. Uh, what are we missing? What, what should we know? So, I mean, mental health far and above is perhaps the most important issue plaguing our students and young people today. Um, and this is not like a revolutionary idea. This is well-known, well-discussed, well-studied. Uh, you know, we know that today suicide is still the second leading cause of death for young Americans between the ages of 12 and 20, um, which is staggering, right? It's 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 incredible to think about the impact that both depression and contemplation of suicide is having at scale and mass, which is a gap that seems to be getting bigger and bigger year over year. Um, we also know that, you know, 6.3 million young Americans between the ages of three and 17, um, which is so incredibly young, suffer from depression, right, or anxiety, um, which is just a staggering number just for our country alone. Um, but we know and a huge part of the driver behind the way that we built our programs and the reason that we tried to build them the way that we did is that we know when you don't just focus on improving a student's academic performance or uh, their competency in a particular subject or their success after that in you know, a particular job or career field, we know that when you actually apply students' skills around impact, around building a better community, serving others, right, service as a core tenant of leadership and volunteering, there are incredible correlations between improving human rights, not only human rights standards, but also improving students' mental health. We know that young people who volunteer are 50% less likely to abuse drugs, alcohol, and cigarettes. Students who volunteer up to 10 hours in a month are much less likely to feel depressed than their counterparts who don't. Obviously, community service, but also just impact and service is critical for you know any college and university admission. And so there's tons of positive benefits. And so for us, as we thought about you know the youth development and youth leadership space is a obviously densely saturated space, right? There's tons of clubs and organizations and groups dedicated to serving young people. But we know that specifically as we work to not just build a better speaker like Toastmasters or speech and debate, or not just build a more successful student who's going to perform academically, but specifically build leaders, leaders who will lead groups of peers, students in their communities to go apply those skills and make impact, whether it's on addressing people experiencing homelessness in their local community or addressing big, broad issues like climate change and figuring out how to better advocate and raise awareness and try to mobilize around those issues. We know that the application of those skills in those spaces doesn't just help the world. 
it helps our young people. And so that's why I really, you know, the intersect of what we're trying to do is build better leaders who will build a better world. What's your outlook? Um, you know, we're, it seems like we're always going through something, but <clears throat> definitely this year with the uh, possible economic downturn um, and the world is starting to be in a little bit more chaos than usual. What do you think is the outlook for the youth? Let's just stick with the U.S. Um, and also the challenges that, uh, you know, legacy youth leadership uh, has in front of it. Yeah. You know, we, we're a newer organization. We're only about four years old. Uh, you know, we've served about 10,000 students. Um, we are aggressively trying to scale because to be perfectly, perfectly candid, we don't have the capacity right now to meet the needs or demands uh, or requests of people who've asked us to come partner with their schools. So, you know, we're super fortunate. Um, you know, the National Association of Student Councils is the sort of parent or umbrella organization that, uh, you know, oversees a very decentralized network of individual state student council organizations that touch basically every education community in the country, um, you know, widely regarded as and, and rightly so as one of the largest, oldest, um, you know, youth leadership orgs in the country. Similarly, there's groups like Kiwanis and Key Club and and so many others. Um, and really, for a long time, there's never really been a training component to those service groups, those service clubs. And so we've been really fortunate and, and grateful to build some really rich, meaningful partnerships with groups like that who have requested us to basically try to serve as many of their students as possible. Um, but they love our programs and it's really great. And we've seen huge impact, right? Like even by working in extremely low income communities, as uh, students figure out how to use their time, their money, their voice, their vote. We've seen, you know, for every dollar we spend on our school programs, students have raised $2.3 for their chosen cause or issue they care about in their local community or the world. Um, you know, I think there's a lot to be really optimistic about, even in in the face of what you're describing, the sort of economic downturn, not just for this year, but I think so many people have felt it already. I know I'm not unique or alone as a leader in that I think I probably wrongly assumed uh, that the hardest two years of the last several years of the sort of pandemic time would have been maybe 2020, 2021. Uh, you know, we we launched Legacy in January of 2020, um, unaware of what would happen a few months later. Uh, and yet, really last year was exponentially harder for us from a fundraising and development perspective than the first two years were. Um, and I think for so many people that were, you know, connected to our org, whether individual donors, sponsors, foundations, uh, I don't think you'll, I don't think a lot of people really felt the pain or sting of inflation into recession until about last year. And it's continued, you know, as everyone has continued to feel into this year. And so, even in the midst of that, which is very real, right? We are really aggressively running hard at some meaningful goals to try to gain more support to serve more students and young people. I'm still optimistic. Uh, I'm optimistic both for our students and young people and their world. And I'm optimistic just about where we're at as an organization and where we're going to go. Um, I believe, you know, for as difficult as it is, and it's important to be honest about those difficulties, there's still a lot to be super positive about, right? Uh, I know as I have conversations with dozens and dozens of students and young people who we work with, 
there is sometimes almost an overwhelming sense of despair or concern about the future, whether it is what seems to be irreparable, uh, you know, or an irreversible course relative to our climate, or whether it's what seems to be um, just overwhelming senses of injustice or uh, widening gaps of inequality. And yet, we know for sure in so many ways, we really are living in the most incredible time in human history. Uh, when you look at life expectancy, access to quality food, health, even equality across gender, race, sexual orientation, et cetera, for as real as the gaps are in those spaces and as real as the injustices are in those spaces. And as long as we really do have to go, which is real and great, we are also so far ahead in almost every measurable category than we were a hundred years ago in each of those spaces as a global community. And so I think that figuring out how to balance that optimism with looking honestly at where we really are and being able to sort of celebrate what is good and true and beautiful about the progress that has been made while also not using that to sort of uh, ignore or, you know, negative uh, sort of negate the reality of where we still need to go. That is the great challenge for young people today, as well as for us as an organization is how do we sort of use what everyone who has come before us has worked so hard to accomplish and point to it and celebrate it and acknowledge it honestly while also saying, yeah, but here is the reality where we need to go. Um, and I think that doing those things together is what prevents you from only focusing on uh, the very real challenges, the very real struggle, which can be overwhelming, which can contribute to that sense of despair, um, while also not just ignoring or negating the reality where we need to go by saying, oh, well, we've arrived, right? Um, and so I think it's a dance and I don't have the perfect answer as to how to do it. There are days where I feel super overwhelmed when I'm like, man, we have requests from so many schools and students who want us to come work with them. And like, we just don't have the money. We just don't have the resources. We don't have the staff to do it right where we're working to grow as fast as we can uh, or around issues that I care about. I, I think it's so easy to look at where we are when there is still uh, a long way to go in a particular issue of injustice and go, man, how are we still here? How in 2023 are we still here? How have we not solved this problem? Um, but the thing I try to practice, I guess, for myself, the thing I try to encourage our staff and our leadership and our students and our programs with is, you know, if I can breathe a little bit of encouragement into us. I think the reason that we're living through so many of the moments and movements that we're living through, through today is because there really never before was truly a generation who was equipped to solve the problems that we face today in the way that this one is. And the reason we're still living through these moments and these movements and have so much left to do and so much further left to go is because there never before was truly a generation alive who could meet those moments. And the reason we're living through these moments is because if you'll just consider it, this is your moment. This is our moment um, to just step into and meet it. This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jarami, and you are listening to my interview with Seth Maxwell from Legacy Youth Leadership. Let's talk about, you uh, mentioned resources. Uh, how do you operate? Where do you get your funding from? 
Yeah, there's sort of three primary buckets of people or groups that fund the work that we do. Um, a handful of really individual major donors. Our board are uh, right now 15 incredible individuals who give very large amounts of money, you know, kind of a minimum of $25,000 a year uh, to fund all of our operations, school programs, etc. Um, you know, they also lead a pretty robust fundraising effort outside of their own personal Where do those people come from? Because I know there are so many philanthropic people out there, but like, how do you find someone that really will nurture and advocate for a youth organization? I mean, candidly, it's been a collection of people that I've met over the last, you know, 15, 16 years, friends who I know really passionately believe in access to education for young people and development for young people, particularly low income students. Um, and making really candid asks of them to say, hey, you know, we have a really big, bold goal of seeing students measurably develop these skills in these areas, these hard and soft skills, and also apply them to change the world. Will you give not only your money, but, you know, our, our board are not just sort of rich people. They are people who are pretty successful in their respective fields, some of whom are uh, ex excellent, you know, exceptional in finance, business, marketing. And so they really do use their skills, their acumen to help us guide where the organization goes, figure out how we tell our story, figure out how to operate better. Um, and so it's a lot of just friends that I've made throughout the years um, who I've made pretty shameless asks of uh, to support the students and the work that we're doing. Right. And then also as that group grows, you know, people in similar groups beget other people and other similar groups. And so as we look to grow and scale, we make asks of them to make introductions to their friends and uh, candidly. People like you, I have conversations with and say, hey, do you know someone who would be moved by or touched by or would resonate with the work we're trying to do with and in the lives of young people who would invest in and believe in it? Um, so I'll probably be making an ask of you soon for some for you to consider the people in your world, right? Because the stakes are super high. Um, the stakes are high in each of the issues that our students are working to address, like climate change or racial justice, uh, but they're also super high in the lives of the students themselves, right? In the lives of these young people that we work with. Um, and so trying to provide free educational supplemental programs, uh, you know, it's, it's work that we are really committed to and are going to continue to run super hard at. And then but there's then, there's also foundations on the yeah. <clears throat> So We also work with foundations as well as corporate partners. Um, and so the interest or kind of drivers behind each of those three buckets, right? Like individuals, major donors, uh, as well as foundations and then corporate partners is all slightly different. The common through line is, you know, they all really care about students and young people that we work with. Um, you know, candidly, a lot of the brands or corporate partners we work with uh, will often partner with us. Yes, because they really care about and and want to see the impact and progress that we're making. Um, but we also are able to provide you know value back to those brands as we figure out how to celebrate the work that they're doing with our students. Um, and then similarly, foundations as well. Um, but the bulk of our support honestly comes from individuals uh, and then some corporate partners. Okay, fantastic. So um, obviously those that are listening want to get involved or uh, want to volunteer or whatnot, they can go to uh, your website if you want to tell us the website. Yeah, legacyyouthleadership.org. 
Um, and in terms of volunteer opportunities, you know, right now, like I said, we we are struggling a bit to keep up with demand. However, we still don't want that to keep people from reaching out and asking. So if you are a teacher, if you're an administrator, if you're a parent or even a student who want to go through one of our programs, want to get connected, um, please like reach out. You can go to our website. We have information about all of our programs, our leadership program, our speaking program. They run all year long. Um, they're free. We don't charge schools or students to go through the programs, right? So um, we want to serve as many young people as we can, uh, but definitely reach out there. If you're an old person, right? If you're an adult who is over the age of like 25, who wants to get involved and help, which I'm an old person, so don't take offense. Uh, there's so many ways you can do so, right? Um, obviously, give, right? It only costs us uh, about 100 to $200, depending on the program, to put a student through one of our programs, which is not that expensive, right? One time, not 100 bucks a month or 100 bucks a year. Um, but it's it's something that is, you know, for most people within reach, if it's not give a dollar, give $5, like, you know, help support young people. Um, outside of that, if you work at a brand or an organization who cares about young people, um, we would love to partner and connect with you. And if you want to give your time, um, we do have opportunities throughout the year. Um, if you are a working professional across like a pretty big spectrum of industries, we, we want to connect students who are or have gone through our program with mentors in our mentoring program. So we have a training program that will train adults, old people who are, you know, working professionals who actually want to connect with an individual student in our program who's working towards a project of theirs, whether that progress project is addressing people experiencing homelessness, whether it's working to lead an awareness campaign around climate change or something else, we pair them with adult mentors and we've sort of trained both. Uh, and it's a pretty low level time commitment, usually about an hour a month or so uh, for a nine or 10 month period to connect with that student and help them work on a specific project to help them reach their goal. Um, and so there's, there's lots of opportunities to get involved. Give us the website one more time. Yeah, legacyyouthleadership.org. Fantastic. Uh, Seth, thank you very much for uh, all the information, uh, not only just about the organization, but in general, it was very insightful. Uh, good luck to you, and uh, I hope to uh, chat with you again soon. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I promise we definitely don't take it for granted. That was Seth Maxwell, um, the founder of Legacy Youth Leadership. Thank you, Seth, for being on the show today and uh, doing you know the great work that you're doing uh, i appreciate your time the blunt post with vic after a 16-year tenure with unite here labor union council member hugo soto martinez was elected in november to represent la's 13th district and has been in office since december 12th the 13th district includes east hollywood little armenia thai town Silver Lake, Echo Park, and several other communities. Good morning, Council Member Soto Martinez. How are you this morning? Uh, I'm doing well. It's a little chilly out, uh, you know, some forecast of rain, but I'm, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. Uh, thank you so much for asking. How about yourself? Uh, I'm doing great. Um, thank you for uh, doing this. Congratulations on being the, the new Council Member from District 13. <laughs> thank you so much. You know, I've, I've been saying this for a while but every four years you know not counting midterm elections but every four years when we do presidential election it seems like at least in my adult life we've always said this is the most important 
uh, election of our lifetime. And it seems like it just repeats every four years. I believe that this last November's election for LA, LA County, LA City, uh, was probably the most important one uh, in my adult life that I can remember, you know, and it was, uh, you know, there was a lot of pressure. What is your perspective looking back on where we are um, as a city, the state of our city, the state of your specific district, District 13? Uh, for those listening, District 13 is very large. It starts sort of like East Hollywood on the border of West Hollywood, goes all the way to Echo Park, Silver Lake, Atwater Village, Glasgow Park, Tytown, Little Armenia, and several more cities and neighborhoods. So what's your perspective on where we are as a city and the district that you are now in charge of? Yeah, you know, actually, I agree with you about, I know we say that sometimes it's sort of a cliche or, you know, but I actually do agree with you. Um, a lot of the folks I worked with kept saying, this is 1994 again, right? Some of the elders that I've worked with, this is 1994 again, this is 1994 again. It's the, the, the year that uh, uh, we got a, a Republican uh, mayor, right? Here in the city of Los Angeles. Um, and so uh, Reardon, right? Uh, Richard Reardon, Reardon, yeah. And so um, I was like, oh, so there was like a reactionary backlash that was like Pete brought in Pete Wilson, Prop 187, Prop 209, right? Some of the very uh, anti-immigrant legislation across the state for California. And so people were saying that as we were coming here. And I, and I was I was uh, very young at the time. And so for as an adult, definitely has felt that way. But I think it really started, um, uh, things were put into place with uh, when Trump being elected in 2016 and, and, and Bernie in 2015 and all the energy that was put around. And it felt like those two movements came to a head this election, right? Uh, we saw in New York, uh, you know, it, more, turn, it turned more conservative and then it was happening here. We saw people drumming the, uh, you know, about crime increasing and inflation and the gas was going up and housing and homelessness. It felt like so many things were sort of uh, agitating people and there was a, a, a absolute fear that it could, we could turn right, right? Like a, a city, the second city of Los Angeles following after New York. And so for, to me, and for a lot of people that ran in the city of Los Angeles, it did feel like we had to really confront that right-wing rhetoric that was happening. And you know, the, the thing that I gotta say is that, that we won, progressives won and we won big. Uh, yeah. And so it, it did feel like that sort of urgency and importance. And now it is, is even more important because it's sort of ushering a, it could usher in a, a very progressive, uh, you know, uh, future for us. So, so yeah, I actually, I actually completely agree with it was the most important election. Yeah, absolutely. We definitely mobilized. This is the Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK ninety point seven FM. I am your host, Vic Jarami, and you are listening to my interview with LA Council Member Hugo Soto Martinez. Um, speaking of progressives and 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 massive changes, of course, Congresswoman Karen Bass, now Mayor. Bass of Los Angeles has, um, you know, one of the top things on her list, as well as many others, has been uh, the unhoused, you know, uh, aka homeless, a challenge in LA, which I think, I think most people agree that it's not really an LA challenge or California challenge. It's really a national, broader national challenge of uh, inequity. Um, disintegration of middle class, not having good healthcare system for uh, mental illness, etc. But either way, we in LA, we you know we have this uh, massive 
unhoused population, and she's sort of taken the the you know the bull by the horn, if you will, in trying to tackle this uh, very aggressively. Uh, how do you feel about uh, her initiatives? Uh, sort of her jump start. I think it's too early to judge anything, but just the way she's started. And are those in line with your plans? As you know, you have laid out a pretty uh, specific plan yourself. I think what she's doing is absolutely the right thing to do. I, I applaud her for her courage. You know, L.A. County and L.A. City is such a complicated area. Uh, you have the county, which stretches from Pomona all the way to Simi Valley, right? And within that county, you have 88 cities, uh, L.A. City being the largest. Uh, and then within L.A. City, you have 15 council members that have a ton of discretion over, uh, you know, what they do in their district. So we have 15 essentially 15 mini mayors. And that's what's, and then you add all the things that you mentioned that are really cre creating this uh, inflow of, of, of homelessness, right? Large, deep systemic issues. And the mayor is saying, this is my issue. I will put this on my back. I am putting my credibility and accountability on me. And that has never happened uh, in, in, the, in the region. And, and that takes a lot of courage. And, you know, and she's coming with, um, with what I think is, is the correct plan, right? Her, her Inside Safe plan is something that we talked a lot about on the campaign trail. Uh, you know, the way we're gonna get out of this is by building housing, but building housing takes time. And, and she's working on that to streamline the, the, the process for affordable housing, right? To make it more, to make it faster, right? To build. But in the meantime, right? We're gonna be using uh, underutilized vacant uh, hotels and motels and other, and, and you know, to, to make sure we house people for now. We know that's not the permanent solution, right? Because housing is a human right. People should have a roof over their head uh, on, a, on a permanent basis. But for now, I think that is the right solution. And, uh, you know, and, and I completely support her and what she's trying to do. I think it's very brave of her. And we got to make sure that she's successful because if she's successful, we're all going to be successful. I like that. And what a good place to be as a new council member to be in line with the new mayor, uh, especially on, you know, what I think, and it's not, what I, I mean, it's just kind of been the fact that housing has really been the top priority uh, or was in this last election. Um, so thank you for that. Now let's talk about you and your initiatives, uh, more specific to uh, District 13. Uh, District 13 is unique, kind of like West Hollywood, where, you know, you are sort of like in the crossroads of all these people who are commuting, crossing it north, south, east, west to get to downtown, to get to Hollywood, West Hollywood, go to the Valley, et cetera. Uh, and you've already sort of initiated many different options to really um, reduce traffic, increase safety, if you will. I wanna let you sort of talk about your initiative for that. You know, we've done a lot of this work. Uh, you mentioned West Hollywood. Uh, you know, I've, I've done a lot of work in West Hollywood uh, over the years. I've run, helped elect a lot of the folks there. Uh, so I'm very familiar with a city that is a small city, right? That is very progressive. I think they have the highest minimum wage in the country at this point. But that was done because we engaged the community, we did door knocking, we built relationships with progressive organizations, and we really started a lot of that work at the grassroots level. Now it's easier to do in a smaller city, like we hope. But you know, we could do that in our district. We could do that by using uh, the chair, the positions we have. You know, luckily, I, I, I'm the vice chair of the Economic and Jobs Committee alongside Kern Price, who has been a champion on all of uh, working class issues. And so, I think when we look at 
trying to pass, you know, worker protections, whether that's they don't make their they don't get their wages stolen or make sure that they have good transit or the sidewalks are repaired or, 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 or tenant protections. Those are all things that we can do here in the city. But because the scale is larger than some other small cities, it's going to require folks to get involved, uh, be part of the political process. Right. I think our campaign was not just about electing the right person, but also recognizing that that power, the power that an elected has comes from the grassroots. When people are engaged and active and they're whether you live in the district or not, you're 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 door knocking, you're you're demanding more. Uh, that's what really pushes uh, progressive policies. And so, you know, we have a, a vision uh, that our, 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 you know, our mouths are bigger than our than our stomachs. But that's good. Right. Because I think we have to have that that uh, sort of a mindset when we're approaching all these issues of the city. So. But yeah, I think all those things, uh, I think, are on the table for us right now. This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you are listening to my interview with LA Council Member Hugo Soto-Martinez. Yeah, I mean, you were with uh, Unite Here, a labor union for 16 years, and Unite Here has done an incredible job, especially in West Hollywood, uh, fighting for workers, especially hospitality workers. And of course, what Hollywood did last year pass the highest minimum rate uh, wage in the nation, which you know I think everyone should just follow suit because <laughs> I was reading it. I was reading an article last year. I think I was I was on Twitter, it was like Huffington Post or something, uh, where they did a study and realized that if you're making minimum wage, you cannot afford a one bedroom apartment to rent in any of the fifty states. Just can't. Yeah, it's insane. It's it's insane. Yes, I mean, so, um, you know, it's a it's a big 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 win for progressives. I also wanted to add to to ask you about the you know your connector program, your for traffic and such, uh, in the in your district, um, where you know traffic is becoming increasingly uh, challenging. Are things starting to move on that? Because I know you've been very aggressive to try to tackle that. Our first day in council, we submitted a, our, our first motion was to instruct uh, DOT uh, and Bureau of Street Services to really address what I say are, are, are pretty heavy transportation issues, whether that's dangerous intersections, which people don't want to walk because, you know, more likely to get hurt. We have a lot of those in the district, uh, broken sidewalks. You know, we often forget that the, one of the modes of transportation is walking. Uh, and that's that's good for the elderly, folks with disabilities. Uh, we identified, you know, streets that could take bus lanes uh, and protected bike lanes, you know, using our infrastructure that we have, but in a way that's not car dominant, right? Uh, and that's what leads to traffic, what leads to the city having the worst pol- air pollution of any major city in the United States. We're ranked last, literally last. And of course, it's just better for you. I took the metro today. Uh, I got my steps in. I, I read my I read a book. Uh, you know, I got here just around right around the same time. Uh, and we have to recognize that most commutes uh, in the city aren't very long. Uh, my commute was five miles. Right, I'm taking a car for a five mile commute. So building those uh, options, whether it's walking, busing, or biking, or light rail, giving people those options is important. And so we have to make accessible, uh, frequent, uh, enjoyable, right? And so we have to head in that direction. And, and if we do all those things, uh, you know, we can have a, a world-class transit system that people will enjoy. Uh, people should not have to dread, you know, trying to figure out how to get on public transportation. It should be 
easy for folks. And we'll see people moving away into, into, into that mode and not in their cars. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. And it's uh, increasingly people are mindful of that um, as alternates in LA rather than uh, driving. So I want to talk about something that's, uh, that affects, well, I think, you know, it's a human rights issue really at the bottom, you know, sort of like as a whole, but uh, of course it, it affects a portion of your constituents. You have a large Armenian community in your district. Uh, your district also includes Armenia. And, you know, you recently um, released a statement regarding what's happening in Artsakh, the blockade of Artsakh to Armenia by Azerbaijan. Uh, it's day 24 of 120,000 Armenians are literally cut off from the rest of the world, running yeah. out of food, yeah. medicine. Thank you for your statement. Uh, that was, I, what I appreciated most was that you, you didn't use generic and safe words. Uh, you know, you just called it out the way it was. Just for those who are listening who may not have read it, you know, what's your stance on what's happening halfway around the world? Yeah, you know, the, the, the issue of immigration is, is one that is very near and dear to me. I mean, my parents migrated here. The district is, you know, the most uh, diverse district. And so, you know, we, we got to call it what it is. Uh, this is a humanitarian crisis. This is a, a human rights crisis. This is about a, a democracy that is at is being attacked by a, a ruthless leader, you know, and 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 when when I think about this, um, I think about how me growing up, you know, there are systems of power that that oppress people, and so in that moment, you just have to call it what it is, and uh, you know, we'll continue to do that. Uh, but we are, you know, we are going to take the leadership of of Pakakorian. He's he's an Armenian leader in the city council. Um, we happen to have a large Armenian community, and. You know, I applaud his 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 leadership on on this issue. Um, you know, and he, and he's you know him and I have spoken, and he says you know this is not just about um, uh, you know an an ethnic issue. It shouldn't be viewed in such a uh, in such a small frame. This is about a human crisis, a humanitarian crisis, about about a ruthless leader trying to hurt people, and so we have to make that a much broader moral fight. Uh, you know, and, and so we have to just find ways to, to make it a, a lot bigger. And, you know, I'm glad the mayor got involved. Uh, you know, her connections to D.C. are already giving yeah. fruit. Uh, and uh, and that was the right thing. And, and I'll continue to follow the lead of, of Paul Kikorian, uh, our council president. Uh, and, and of course, from the community, because at the end of the day, we're here to serve the community, not, not the other way around. This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jarami. And you are listening to my interview with LA Council member Hugo Soto Martinez. I appreciate that. I appreciate the, you know, your wording. You're not sort of um, mincing words, uh, and and you're really up to date on what's happening. So <laughs> it's really refreshing, believe me, as as an Armenian American, for witnessing the, and you know, a lot of it has to do with, with the media not covering it. There's so many people that are in the dark. So um, thank you for that. Going back to District 13, uh, you know, I brought up a few initiatives and uh, some of your more your priorities in terms of tackling things, but I'm sure I've missed uh, a few. What are like maybe three, four, five of your sort of top priorities in District 13 aside from you know unhoused? Yeah. So 
this is a again a very unique uh, district, right? There's a large Armenian community, Filipino community, Central American, Mexican, Bangladeshi community, a Thai community, and so it's a district. But if you look at the composition, it's it's, it's vastly changing. And what what cuts through, regardless of which group you belong to, is that they're all facing the same issues. Uh, the cost of living and affordability in this issue is hurting working people. It's hurting immigrants. It's hurt. It's hurting those communities. And so we really have to think about how we create housing that actually people can actually afford. People should not be moving to Palmdale, uh, you know, uh, Victorville, right, to commute into that is bad for the families, bad for the environment. It's it's you should people should be able to live, work, and play in the city. And so we really have to make sure that kind of housing exists. Very closely tied to that is is tenant protections. People who live here, let's protect them. Let's make sure that they're not being pushed out. Uh, we have landlords with very terrible tactics, pushing people out, harassing them, not fixing the apartments, making the places uninhabitable, offering cash for keys. Uh, you know, these sort of, and, and so that that's something we, we could do. The city could do a large role in that. Of course, I'm a big union person. Uh, nothing changes a people's person's life than having a union. And so using our position, uh, making sure people have, number one, protection so they don't get fired at will, uh, that they have a good wage, that they have health care, that their employer provides health care. And through that process, many workers find their own power and their own voice to continue to stand up on other issues. I've seen this happen so many other times. And of course, we talked about uh, transit and how that sort of um, is connected to climate crisis and uh, you know, the climate itself could have so many issues we can think about, like electrification of buildings, building more community gardens, uh, green spaces, uh, things like that. So I would say there's, there's so many things, but uh, I would put all those sort of four and five as some of the most urgent things. You know, the things we the things we campaigned about, campaigned on. Piece of cake. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I, yeah. I, I look forward to, uh, you know, I was like, I was talking to my friend yesterday. He was like, you know, you're going to do a second term? I was like, yeah, I'll do a second term. And he's like, what about third? I was like, well, we'll see about the third. I was hopefully we can. But of course, uh, I was like, look, the thing I told him, I said, we got to solve as many issues as we can. And, and that takes three terms and then we'll do it, you know. So but yeah, a lot of work to do. I like I like that the word union is back into conversations. I'm hearing it more. I remember this slogan I read, uh, work union, live better. That's right. That's you know, right. I, it's, it's been too long since unions have showed some some uh you know muscles you know and i mean that in a good way so it's it's good to know that people like you are winning and out there and fighting the good fight council member before we go i know you're you're short with time is there a question i should have asked that i missed is there something you'd like to add yeah i think that sort of piggybacking off of the the way we started this conversation about how hopeful how important this election was you know, one of the big victories we got was uh, Measure ULA. You know, there's a lawsuit right now. The the Harvest uh, Jarvis Foundation and the you know, Apartment Association are uh, filing a lawsuit. You know, we, we feel it's going to get overturned. But but that passing was monumental. Right? It, it's going to put between 600 million and 1.1 billion dollars into into funding for rental relief, uh, tenant protections. And my favorite, uh, the building of social housing, right? We haven't built so enough social housing in the city in a very long time. And so when we talk, when we look at other cities, uh, you know, other major cities, you know, the, the, it, housing is not something that's viewed as for profit. Uh, it, it's, it's, 
it's given by the government. It's 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 not the way you know, and it's good housing, right? So as we have that money, make sure that we use it correctly, uh, and build housing that that you know it's not exploitative, that it's not uh, gouging folks, it's not owned by corporations, uh, as as is seventy percent of the housing stock in the city right now. And so I think if we really tackle at that route, you know, we can have some massive changes in the city, and and it's going to be up to us to make sure that that gets implemented. Uh, the law passed, but how it's processed and how it's done is gonna be left to uh, the 15 council members that are sitting here. So we gotta make sure that it's done the right way. Absolutely, that was a huge win. And if you're listening, things take time. <laughs> so, doesn't happen in a few months. It happens in a few years. It has to, uh, you know, it, it, it takes time. And uh, sometimes we want our elected officials to just take out the magic wand, but it doesn't work that way. <laughs> um, Councilmember uh, Soto Martinez, thank you for being on the show. Good luck, although I don't think you need it. <laughs> thank you uh, so much. Until we hopefully uh, chat again soon. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for having me and uh, stay safe, everyone. That was my interview with Councilmember Hugo Soto Martinez from LA's uh, District 13th. Uh, thank you very much, Councilmember. Uh, it was a pleasure. Thank you for your time. Uh, and I hope to chat with you again soon. Before we go, I'd like to thank my producer, Ricky Herrera, without whom this show would not be possible, and KPFK, the station that brings you unfiltered and commercial-free news, opinion, and hopefully some inspiration. Thank you for joining me today on The Blunt Post with Vic. For more information, please visit thebluntpost.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Vic Jarami, at V-I-C. G-E-R-A-M-I. Thank you. The Blunt Post with Vic.